0: Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Nick Hudson, Executive Director of an organization called Entertainment to Effect Change, or E2AC. E2AC is a nonprofit organization committed to producing high quality digital, cinematic, and live entertainment for the express purpose of bringing positive change to underserved health and social communities. E2AC's vision is to revolutionize the way that organizations, content creators, and funders collaborate to tell meaningful and powerful stories that entertain, engage, educate, and inspire. In our conversation, Nick and I discuss E2AC's origins, its mission, and how he came to be involved with the organization. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I ask you please subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. And now on to my conversation with Nick Hudson of E2AC. Hello, Nick Hudson, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Great to be here and thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Nick is the executive director of an organization called Entertainment to Effect Change, otherwise known as E2AC, and that is affect
1: change with an A, not an E. (laughs) It's a big debate. Technically, it could be either one, but it really, it was a fun conversation of whether or not it was sounded with the correct effect. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, my go-to on that for years used to be, well, let me think. It's a special effect in, you know, in movies. They use special effects, not special affects.
1: <laughs> that's a good way to do it. That's See, that's a lot easier. I'm going to start using that. That's great. Go. Feel free. That's yeah. why it's, it's a mouthful. E2AC is a lot easier, but it's, uh, it's very clear what we do when we give it the full title. So that works, too.
0: That's, that's an excellent point because that full title, Entertainment to Effect Change, kind of sums up what you guys are all about. But broaden that for me, please. Uh, tell me what the um, sort of the model and the mission of
1: E2AC is. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, uh, which is good to know because we essentially act like a production company or a traditional producer for things like films, documentaries, uh, podcasts, events, festivals. Um, But the big difference being we don't take um, a profit from it, right? That's what a nonprofit is. So we're able to get involved in things like a documentary and say, we're going to help you find funding. We're going to help you find appropriate partners, uh, find a a distribution package that works. Um, But unlike a traditional producer who will do all that, you know, with the idea that they'll take a percentage or they'll loan you money and then get some back, we just say we'll do it um, because it's the right thing to do. And luckily we have a board of directors that's great and supports us. And we have, um, you know, funding supporters who, who really believe in our work. And so we're able to do this kind of thing, uh, with their help. And ultimately what our goal is, is everything that we touch, regardless of the form of entertainment it takes or the medium, uh, everything has an ask that's very specifically tied to affecting change in a positive way. Right. So changing people's behavior in a positive way. So if that's something as, general as seeing a film about a cause they might not have known much about before. And now it changes how they maybe see a population or if it's something as specific as, hey, here's a place that you can volunteer that has to do with that cause. All ways that we think that change can be affected. And so when you break down our name, um, it it gives a good idea of what we're all about and what we uh, really are passionate about doing. How long has the organization been around? We started in 2013. 2013. Uh, So, so a good amount of years, but we started uh, up until fairly recently, we were all volunteer led. So it was all people who either worked in entertainment or worked in nonprofits who, who felt passionate about this. Um, And uh, as recently as January 1st, 2021, when I was able to come on as executive director, it was all volunteer led up to that. And then I was able to be the first employee, which is a, a amazing thing because I got to see the organization before this time period, and now after. So from January to now and in, in the future, um, we've developed more programs, we've developed more funding streams, we've developed more projects, and that's uh, been a while, nine months, but it's been really, really fun to be part of it.
0: And was there a, a particular initiating cause or, or or event that spurred the creation of, of the
1: organization? So we were started uh, from a very specific Specific story and a very personal one. And that was from someone named Patrick James Lynch, who's actually a personal friend of mine. I have known him for over 20 years now, uh, which is crazy to think about. Uh, but Patrick was born with severe hemophilia, uh, which for people who don't know, it essentially means your blood doesn't clot like it should. Um, you're missing a factor that allows you to do that. And he was born with it. And so is his younger brother named Adam. And it's uh, passed down as genetic. So oftentimes siblings both have it sometimes they don't but oftentimes they do the way that hemophilia is treated for people like patrick and his brother adam for the for the layperson have to essentially inject yourself with something called factor and that allows your blood to clot correctly because otherwise if you suffer what could for a normal person be a small injury you could bleed out and be severely injured so that's what hemophilia is facing on an everyday basis unfortunately and up until midway through the 20th century, there wasn't really a way to treat it in the way that there is now. So for most of history, it was a really severe and unfortunately, really tragic um, uh, condition to be diagnosed with. Mm -hmm. So Patrick and Adam, both born with it. two brothers, Patrick moves to LA works in entertainment. Uh, His brother who's younger is in college and was never as adamant about going through the treatment of hemophilia and unfortunately suffered an injury and passed away from what was a very preventable injury. You know, he could have essentially, if he was doing what he should have as a hemophiliac, he wouldn't have died because he was non-compliant. He wound up passing away. So really tragic, really young guy, Adam Lynch. And so that really spurred Patrick to start creating content that was aimed at fellow hemophiliacs. So he started asking questions like, you know, if I work in entertainment, if I can produce content that's really powerful and really moving, why am I not doing that for my own community? And, you know, he always says that he felt like his younger brother never really identified as someone who had that condition. And because of that, he never really, you know, treated it in, in the serious way it should have been. And so Patrick's answer to that as the surviving brother trying to prevent other people from having their family pass away was, what if I just start creating really cool content that has to do with this particular disease state? because the way I learned about my disorder was reading a pamphlet about it or watching a crappy VHS in a basement. Like, why is there not a cool YouTube channel? Why is there not a podcast about it? Things that we take for granted in 2021, going back a couple of years, um, that wasn't the case. So he started creating this really, really impactful, funny, engaging content that was meant to entertain and uh, really to affect change. And that's how we got our name. And so the nonprofit developed out of that and, over the years, we've started to, you know, obviously become involved in more than that, but that's really where we started. Um, and it's it's pretty incredible to see how far it's come in eight years. And that's a testament to Patrick as a founder and all the great people like that, you know, like myself who feel themselves really lucky that we were invited into this organization um, to help it, you know, expand and grow and, and take its core idea and replicate it to other causes. So when I was
0: looking at your background, Nick, I saw that uh, you did some time in law school, made it through Made it through all of law school, in fact. How'd you find your way into the nonprofit world?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm a, a proud uh, law school graduate of St. John's in New York, uh, in Queens, New York, but like a lot of other lawyers, never practiced today in my life. Uh, and I find that to be really lucky. <laughs> so the more I talk to more friends who practice, the luckier I feel every day. Day that i get to do uh, really impactful work uh, but i'm grateful that i went through that uh that ringer uh, but the way i got into non-profit work was was very much an accident i think you know a happy accident i'm really happy of how it worked out um but i was always involved with a lot of causes like lots of other people right other people find stuff there they enjoy and and causes that they care about um but the way i got down my personal career path was i signed up in college when i was an undergraduate to be a bone marrow donor which a lot of people don't know much about. You swab your cheek and there are patients out there who generally suffer from blood cancer, but now can be um, suffering from a couple of different things. And um, you can be eligible to save their life with a bone marrow donation. Uh, and luckily it's pretty, it's pretty rare, but I got called. So it was like one in a thousand chance. And I got called to be a marrow donor for a little boy who had leukemia, who was only four years old. And um, all I knew was he was four and he had cancer and that was it. What does that cheek swab reveal? Is that a DNA match? Yeah, it's it's like your HLA typing. It's called so it's it pretty much is a way that the patient or recipient's body is less likely to reject a donor's typing. So it gets pretty it gets pretty clinical. But the general idea is you guys are genetically matched. You probably share a pretty um, strong genetic background. Sure. So generally you know, communities of color will match other communities of color or people who are Jewish will match other Jewish recipients or somebody like me with a Western European background will match somebody who has a similar background. Um knew, And so it gets uh, really interesting. I actually love the history of it because what's that?
0: You knew that your bone marrow was going to uh, help this, this little boy who had leukemia.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's all, you know, so yeah. you, you agreed to that's do it. <laughs> and most people yeah. And most people think it's a big, painful surgery. Most of the time now it's just like giving platelets, um, for lack of a better way to put it, you just kind of sit in a machine, you sit on, on a machine it takes your blood, spins it through a machine and gives it back to you. Mm-hmm. So you actually get your blood back. It just takes out the cells that are near the stem cells. So it's a lot easier. Most people think I actually did it the old school way, which is to get, um, uh, get it from my marrow, which is like your, your hip bone, but that's a lot less, um, a lot less likely now. So long story short, was able to donate, um, a year later, after a year passes, you can meet. And I was able to meet him. Um, I found out he was in Massachusetts. He's actually right. Or, or New Hampshire, but he was treated in Boston. Okay. So it could be from anywhere in the whole world. You have no idea. And he was from a couple hours away from me in New York. He was in, yeah. in Boston at the time. Yeah. And so we got to meet, he was five by then he was completely healthy. Um, I got to know his parents, got to know his whole family, got to meet his doctors and his nurses. And, uh, it was just an incredible experience that, that truly changed my life. So I got involved with the organization that facilitates it, which was called gift of life or is called gift of life, uh, marrow registry. Uh, and that's where people can, can sign up to, to register. If you're out there and listening, you can register to be a donor at giftoflife.org. Um, and so I used to volunteer with them and was just really touched by my own experience and, and the patients that I got to meet who were doing similar stuff. And so I started working for them. So after law school, I worked for them. Um, and got to do all this great stuff. But that was truly like my entree into professional nonprofit life was kind of going from volunteer to professional um, and seeing all the fun that comes with it, right? Like it's great as a volunteer to see what an organization's like, but it's even greater to become involved with it As your day-to-day job and still love it and not be turned off by the by the field and for me that's what led to where i am now so from there was able to work with a lot of great organizations along the way Uh, stupid cancer which helps young adult cancer patients iliana leadership foundation which helps um, communities of color and students from at-risk backgrounds test prep for college. And then finally where I am now, entertainment to effect change. So I was a volunteer for them and similar story. Um, they asked me to, to come on board as a full-time employee. That's a, that's a very, I mean, I guess not so brief, right? Not so brief <laughs> for, it's, for it's a tour, but that's no, how anyway. we got it. And, but I think it's important it to succinct. know how you get from, you know, just a normal person to the nonprofit world. Um, everybody gets there in different ways. And for how, me, it was how did, very much personal uh, experience. You-
0: how did you find out about E2AC, or how did they find out about you? Because in the there are a lot of nonprofits out there, but you know the you you finding out about one that just happens to align with your mission and your values is is a pretty special thing too.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. There's lots of great organizations. Um, many of them doing the same things too, which is always kind of fun because you get a lot of organizations who all have great things in mind. It's hard to collaborate sometimes. But the thing that I like most about E2AC is that we get to collaborate because we come in and just say, we're going to help you produce content that matters. And as long as, as long as your mission is aligned with the, the content we're trying to put out there, there's no issue, you know, there's no, there's no drama. Um, and the way I was able to find it was because I had this friendship with Patrick who founded E2AC you know, over the course of like two decades. And I was going out, I live in New York, but I was going out to Los Angeles a lot for work where he lived and we met up and we started talking and he told me about the organization and, and mentioned how, you know, there's certain stuff that's a little bit outside the focus of them as, as producers and content creators, you know, like mm-hmm. backend systems and fundraising and all the stuff that's not as much fun to deal with when you start a nonprofit. Um, and, and we just started talking more and more about how we can do stuff together. And that kind of wound up with him asking if I wanted to come on board, you know, as a founding member of the board directors, how would you like to come on and be our first employee? Um, Because E2AC saw some really, really incredible growth. You know, in 2018, we produced a movie called Sometimes I Think About Dying that was Oscar shortlisted and Sundance selected. So a huge deal for short films. is what everybody tries to get to. The following year, they produced another documentary called Bombardier Blood, which is about the first hemophiliac to, um, to summit Mount Everest, which is a huge deal for someone who has a blood disorder and and really inspiring story for people in that community. Then in 2020, we were able to put out another incredible film called My Beautiful Stutter, which the producers were Paul Rudd, Mariska Hargitay, George Springer, uh, who was a World Series MVP at the time, now plays yeah. for the Astros. Uh, <laughs> just to Incredible people getting not behind exactly our docs, and they were like Was that
0: I said not exactly unknown folks, Paul? Yeah, knows. exactly.
1: So what started is this, you know, relatively small nonprofit that was friends just trying to do something cool. Suddenly it was print out documentaries that were Oscar, you know, like produced by top A-list stars and being and and short films that were being Oscar listed So clearly there was room for it to grow and credit to them for, for knowing that it was time to, to, to bring on more professionals who, who have, who shared that vision. Yeah, and so, so case, I feel like I got like, lucky to come you know, around
0: In the case of something like My Beautiful Stutter, um, how does that work in in terms of did that, did the idea for that film originate within E2AC or did somebody have the idea, find out what you guys do and how you do it and come to you with the notion of, hey, can you be the producing entity
1: behind this project? Yeah, more so the latter there. We don't, truly come up with a lot of really original content and say, we have an idea for a film. Let's go find a director and a funder and a cause. Um, Generally it's one of those three coming to us. So in a perfect world, it's a funder saying I'd like to fund some content about X, go out and find a producer. Here's a bunch of money, go do it. That doesn't happen as much. What's usually the case is it's a, it's a cause that will come to us and say they have an idea. um, And, and, can you help us go fund the the project or go source out the talent to make it happen? Or somebody who is a creative a director or a producer or a cinematographer saying, I have an idea for a film, but I don't know which nonprofit to attach it to. I don't know what cause that I could, I could, you know, be part of it. And, uh, and, and can you help me find funding? And so that's how we are able to kind of negotiate those three parties. And so for my beautiful stutter, it was more so um, the director on it. It was a really incredible, talented young director named Ryan Gillen. Uh, who's based in Los Angeles um, met up with one of the producers and it was the producer from, um, from the King speech. So they were able to, they they were at a gala together for an organization, um, which is say New York, which is, uh, which is, Help. It it helps people who have stuttering issues. And so they have a summer camp and Ryan essentially asked, can I come and film it? And let's turn this into a documentary. So he had this vision years ago, literally they filmed for years. And that's the part of documentaries that a lot of people don't talk about is it is a labor of love for a half a decade or more, and so he that was his life for a couple of years. And um, E2AC was able to come in then and become a funding partner and raise money because, as a as a nonprofit, we can accept donations and apply it directly to that project. Right. So it, it kind of replaced like a GoFundMe, but in a much more official capacity. You know, in that we were able to offer a donation platform for a film that obviously was really incredible. And then um, from there, it was able to bring on list producers and uh, gain distribution through Discovery Plus. So it's available on Discovery Plus right now for a national audience.
0: What kind of experience had you had, uh, if any, with people in the uh, creative arts, the, you know, the, the writers, the producers, the directors prior to uh, getting involved with this organization?
1: So my expertise was much more in the nonprofit side of it than the creative media side of it. But those are people i met very quickly so i i had people that i've known through the years but have much more been like either friendships or you know professional collaborations that we stay in touch less so oh i came into this job with a list of 50 producers who i can call on tomorrow kind of just happened over the last few months um and luckily because i think our list of projects was so strong. And frankly, our vision for the next couple of years was really clear. We were able to attract you know, members from our board of directors that have those connections. So it doesn't matter that I don't, because frankly, they're going to be more powerful coming from a volunteer like a board member anyway. Um, uh, and obviously, because we had volunteers over the years, they were able to become those contacts right away uh, for in the creative space. So you had mentioned that in addition to uh,
0: documentary work that you guys um, help get out into the world, uh, as a producing company. Uh, you know, there's also video series and podcasts and live events. How have the projects been shaking out? Uh, are there more on the documentary side or does it feel like it's an even distribution across all of those
1: platforms? I wouldn't say it's so even, but it's not totally out of whack. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely get more pitches for documentaries or short films than anything else. Yep. So oftentimes it's somebody who has a kind of a vision for a project and will come to us and say, I have this vision. All I need is some amount of money to get it funded, to get to the next editing stage. Um, and we look at every proposal, you know, as it comes in. So we don't say we only get involved at the very early stage or no, we only touch things that are ready to be distributed in six months or less. We look at everything, regardless of the stage it comes in. We are definitely inundated with more projects like that than any others. So, um, so we have to be really selective about it. We really don't try to take on more than two to three, you know, film projects at a time only because they are so production heavy and the timelines are so long and the budgets are so high, um, versus something like a live event that we're able to put on in a shorter amount of time. Uh, And I say live event, which could at this point in September of 2021 mean a virtual event (laughs) too. Uh, But a good example is that is, is we were able to join up um, with an existing film festival, which is called disorder, the rare disease film festival. So it really concentrated on ultra rare diseases, um, particularly, you know, families that are going through it. Where do you turn if you have a child who's born with an ultra rare disease, where there might only be five other people in the world going through what you're going through as a parent and that, and, and there were some really powerful short films coming out of this festival and um and we were able to to tag team into it. And, and we're one of the producers on it 2022. So we're seeing how we can amplify the festival, you know, bring more eyes to these really incredible films, um, you know, help to, to figure out how we get more sponsors in so that they can essentially amplify the films that are already happening, but get it to a broader audience, um, who may not be aware it, it is occurring. And so that's something that's really interesting, right? So it's kind of a, a, a marriage of the things that we already do, which is more on the film side, with um, something we're able to leverage a lot of volunteers and a lot of funders and, and advocates for, which is doing something that's an event that people can actually attend. And so for us, it's really exciting and, and definitely something we see as uh, something that could be replicated, uh, mainly in that in the spring of 2020, 2022, um, in the spring of 2022, we're launching the social impact film festival, which comes out of our student program. So every year we have um, over 50 uh, students who, who in turn with entertainment to effect change. And the social impact film festival is meant for emerging artists who may not have any credits to their IMDb profile, but do know that they want to do and create this kind of work. And so that festival is aimed at that population. So we are see they, that as just a r- great way to col- do it. Are they college students or high school students? The people who run it are college students. Okay. So we have them, you know, helping with deliverables, helping create uh, posts, hope, uh, helping do outreach to the people who will be actually submitting films. Um, and it's not meant to just be like another college film festival. It's just help run by students. So they get to see what it's like behind the scenes to run a festival and to really do outreach to professionals, you know? Um, and so they're not the ones necessarily, um, who are interns just submitting the work they're doing all the back end work to make sure that other people's work is is shown um and everything that comes to that festival has to have a social impact message it has to have a specific ask that's attached to each artwork so that's important for us because it gives it a really specific a really specific ask that comes out of every film you know it's not just something you watch and then think about something you watch think about and then do something about
0: Yeah. Have you have you found that uh, the organization has had to be disciplined around the types of causes and messaging that it attaches itself to? And if so, how would you define what that category of of sort of type of message or type of cause that you're aligning with?
1: Yeah, the types of causes is tough because I, I would say the discipline has to be in what we say yes and no to or how many we say yes and no to because the most difficult thing that i've found um both as a volunteer for the organization and obviously being the executive director is there's so many great causes and there's so many great people who want to help and there's so many incredible creatives who want to lend their help to causes that it's really tough to say well how do we only pick two or three to focus on you know so i think the discipline comes for me which is difficult in saying no to a lot of really great projects um that, that shouldn't be made or maybe will be made, but just not with our help right away, you know? And so.
0: Is that due to financial constraints or, or the fact that from a message perspective, they're kind of outside of what you guys perceive to be your, your
1: wheelhouse. I would say in a perfect world, if we had unlimited films, we could fund and help with other ones. Yep. Um, so certainly I'd say financial constraints are part of it, but they're not the whole reason. It's mm-hmm. not like we're just saying no. Yep. Um, a lot of it's, Time wise, because we don't act as a bank that says, "Okay, apply for us and you get a 10K grant to make your film. That's not really our model. Our model is apply to us for your help. And uh, once it's accepted, we'll leverage all our contacts to try to make your project happen. You know, so we'll go help you raise the money. We'll act as your fiscal sponsor to accept the money and then just distribute it to your film or project or whatever it is. Um, so it's not necessarily like, you know, we don't have enough funds to allot to projects. It's more so there's only so many projects, you know, you could ask a board to champion, you know, if there's 10 board members, 10 to 15 board members, you can't have 150 projects because not everybody can do that. But if you have 10 to 15 projects, everybody can pick their favorite. We can get into it. Um, so that's, that's the bigger part. Uh, and also, you know, there definitely is a certain a certain amount of fatigue if we were to take on the same kind of project every time, you know, certainly we probably have a lot more contacts within, let's say, just the rare disease community if that's all we did. But we're purposely a broad organization that's able to take on, you know, concepts and um, subject matter that's very broad and diverse. So we, we look at it as, okay, well, we, we kind of have to be diverse in what we look at because we don't want to just do the same kinds of projects over and over again.
0: Yep. And as the organization has grown, have your, uh, fundraising efforts, have they grown also, and have they changed at all in terms of, you know, how you're reaching out to donors and, you know, the, the, the nature of the messaging to the donors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think every nonprofit goes to that, you know, your, your outreach plan kind of has to change, um, where it was, it was very much reactive, um, prior to this year, you know, we get a project and okay, let's, let's set up a page and get donations for it. We still do do that, but we're also trying to be much more proactive about it, you know, so that we can build up a certain amount of funds to be able to proactively, um, apply to projects uh, down the road. So I would say we're somewhere in the middle there right now. You know, the idea is by 2022, we build up enough of, a, um, you know, enough of a surplus that we can then say, okay, if a project comes in, we really like it. We don't have to wait a year to go find the funding to do it. We can apply some of that funding to a project. Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, I think, bold strategy for nonprofits to say we want to develop a surplus for programs. Everybody wants to do that. Um, we feel like we're in a position to because our overhead is so low, you know, we don't have a huge staff, Uh, we essentially operate of a business model of, okay, if we have one person in this case, luckily being me, who can bring in contacts, who can do the work and are really passionate about it, they become kind of an extended staff, you know? And so all the creatives we work with, um, really are an extension of the organization, even though they're not a full-time employee of ours. And so that allows us a lot of flexibility to say, Hey, we have all these great people. We have all these great calls is the one ingredient that we're missing now is to get some funding and to apply to it. So let's give funders the opportunity to pick which kinds of projects they want to see happen. Yep. Um, and and I see that it, it's just a really powerful thing to be able to offer a, a donor um, who's so often approached to do one single program or to fund one single part of a program. We're really giving them a choice to say, tell us what you like. We'll go out and find the right people to do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And have you... Um, in? Uh, have there been any instances where E2AC has helped put together uh, kind of a, um, a multi pronged uh, approach to a particular cause? Say, you know, maybe the, uh, the way the, um, the story gets out into the world is by way of a documentary, but every documentary, even the, the most impactful documentary ever made, is still going to have a finite audience. Uh, but the condition. or or the issue that they're dealing with uh, doesn't go away when the documentary ends. Uh, Is there a way that, you know, you, you sort of, you use a documentary say, or a podcast to introduce a topic, build a community, and then, you know, perhaps build an infrastructure so that the communication and conversation can keep going.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think a great example is actually a documentary we're working on right now. So it's very much, um, we're filming, we're we're filming constantly. And it's very much in production and it's called deliver us. And it's about black maternal health, which is a fairly niche topic, right? It's not something that everybody knows a lot about, but it is something that got a lot of attention in 2021. Um, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris put out a statement about black maternal health. There was a black maternal health month for the first, for, for the first time that really got traction in the media. It's something that we were approached for early in the year. And kind of luckily we just started to see all this other interest in the topic. And so what uh, it's a film about two black midwives uh, in Los Angeles who started the first uh, uh, essentially clinic birthing center it's called for, you know, focused on black women who were, who were pregnant. Right. So. Fairly straightforward. Black women die at two to three rate, two to three times the rate of white women who are pregnant in the U.S., regardless of background, regardless of education level. doesn't matter if you are a Ph.D. and you're a black woman, you actually still have a two to three times higher rate of dying during childbirth than a white woman who even has a high school education. So it cuts across a lot of other socioeconomic lines, which our brains kind of automatically think is probably the reason. So obviously it's a it's a strict it's a strictly racial reason. And so we were really interested in seeing what the what's the potential solution to these. And one of those potential solutions that has come up is um, starting to start these midwifery, clinic, midwifery clinics that are run by black women, essentially for black women, although they are, are open to all mothers and uh, really powerful documentary, uh, which people can check out uh, the previews for on But what we're also really interested about is how do we create kind of an educational component to this movie? Because obviously you know, we can create a really dynamic film that gets people's attention, but what do people do after they see that film? And so what we're actually talking to somebody about as recently as yesterday is creating um, an educational program that, that really buttresses the film. So if you see the film, where can you go that day to download a resource packet to learn why it's an issue and what people can do about it and how they can actually support the birthing centers that are popping up. So if we have a list of them, they can see where they are in their area uh, or even if they're not in their area and see how they can help and how they can support them. Um, And so there's just a lot of really cool um, I think ideas now for how people can support, um, how people can support causes that are the subjects of, 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 you know, media uh but in a really tangible way and i think that's a good example that we're trying to show is everything that we produce we want there to be something that surrounds it where people feel like i can go help after i see this movie whether that's a good donate button or that's an i volunteer button that has to that is now part of the equation it's not just enough just to create you have to give somebody um an avenue to help after they watch what you've created
0: Absolutely. In, in the way that it's an important distinction on the on the uh, the viewer side, too, because you come away with an option to uh, that that extends just beyond an emotional reaction to the to a film. Right. You know, so often, particularly in the world of documentary, you come away from a documentary feeling, you know, informed and enlightened and moved. But oftentimes people feel in a weird way, almost Almost powerless if there's not some type of a forum or an infrastructure in place to say, okay, you've seen the movie, you've educated yourself. Now this is what you can do.
1: Yeah, it's true. It is. And that a lot of the the experience of the people who started E2AC, the founders and the volunteers and myself, was that exact scenario where we've watched something or participated in an event and been like, how do I kind of feel worse than I did before? Um, because you do feel powerless. And that comes up a lot now, for example, with like climate change, there's a lot of um, interest in the anxiety, particularly among young people Um, about the topic of climate change because people feel so powerless and so small. And that's just one example where you talk about any social issue where people just don't know what they can do about it. It came up a lot during the George Floyd's murder where people were like, I live in the suburbs across the country. What possible good, What what could I possibly do to help? Um, And so what we really are interested in is seeing how we can bridge that gap between experiencing something like a film or listening to a podcast, but then knowing that they could do something about it. That's very much at the forefront of every project we take on. You know what's what's going to be the eventual ask, if there's not something that's going to be very clear, it's not going to be our. It's not going to be for us.
0: Now, a lot of our listeners are, not surprisingly, media makers. Maybe uh, more than a handful of them are going to hear this podcast and say, "Oh, this is fantastic!" Because I've I've had this idea for a long time. Not only do I have the idea, I've got almost all the pieces in place, but I need a producing entity. How do they reach you? How do they find out whether they sort of it's a good fit? How do they initiate
1: that process? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And we definitely welcome everybody's uh, interest in what we do, uh, whether you're a creative or a funder or another cause. We we're very much interested in people's projects because uh, ultimately, you know, we don't know what's out there unless we hear from people who are creatives and have this idea. So we definitely welcome everyone. They can reach me um, very simply. It's Nick at E2AC.org, N-I-C-K at E2, the number 2, ac.org um They can check out our site at E2AC.org as well. You can look at some of our uh, past projects, some of our pending projects, um, just some more information about us in general. Check out, you know, my bio or our board. Um, and, you know, just be in touch the way that we kind of accept proposals, there's a place people can do it right on the site or they can simply email us. And then we essentially bring that to our board of directors and volunteers and say, Hey, which of these do we think is plausible? Mm -hmm. Um, let's have a couple conversations with the people behind it and see, you know, based on timeline, based on how far along the project is based on the budget that's out there based on the cause and the impact it'll have, um, based on what our potential ask could be of a viewer down the road. We take all that stuff into account. Um, we have like a mini algorithm that kind of gives it a formula and says, okay, this one graded out at this rate, this could be a good one. Uh, and does, so we definitely welcome people to project, reach out.
0: Does that vetting of projects take place on a uh, schedule basis, like X number of times a year, or is it more ad hoc?
1: It's definitely more rolling. Um, only because we definitely don't jump into projects like the day after our conversation. Um, we definitely are have a little bit of a longer runway only because we do get a lot of proposals. Um, and, and frankly, the ones that are the strongest where we see the biggest kind of, um, the biggest bottleneck in projects is ones that come to us pretty much exactly what you said say, I have everything, but all I need is ADK to get me through the last editing stage. There's a lot of those doesn't mean they're not really impactful projects, there's a lot of them that are that particular stage of the development, you know? And so people who are coming to us either earlier stages, it's a little bit easier because we have a longer runway. It's not I need 80K by May. Um, and also uh, people who have uh, obviously some funding connections beforehand that we can facilitate with them, you know, um, because as a 501c3, we're able to you know accept funding from places that a normal individual or even an LLC that's, created for the purpose of a a project, um, doesn't have access to, you know, you can't accept funding from a family foundation if you're just a regular LLC, Um, or it'll be 99 times easier for us to accept it for you and then just give to the project as a producer. So, um, things like that are good to know just in terms of what, what kind of gets advanced or at least gets debated at some of our board meetings down the line.
0: We're creeping up on the last quarter of, uh, (laughs) 2021, unbelievably. And, So as things stand right now, how clear a picture do you have as to what's going to be coming out from E2AC for
1: 2022? Yeah, lots of stuff. It's interesting. We have a couple projects that are all in totally different phases. So Deliver Us is very much being, you know, being shot right now, Mm -hmm. uh, but also being talked about. It was on the cover of the LA Times a few weeks ago which is really incredible. Um, And so that's very much in production. That probably is not a 2022 film because there's lots of stages to go and we have really high hopes for it. There are other films that we're working on that are a little bit further down the line. Um, One of them is called Poster Child, which is about, uh, for maybe people who are a little bit older in the audience, about Ryan White, who was a teenager in Indiana in the 1980s, who was diagnosed with it. Yeah, exactly. He's diagnosed HIV and died of AIDS um, as a hemophiliac. So yes. it's a story of uh, kind of kind of shining a light on his story in 2021. And for people who were alive then, he was very much a public figure. Um, so. And and his story has almost been forgotten by a lot of young people by time. So we're, we're kind of shining a light on it and showing really why it's more important than ever. Because topics um, like health in school and public health and, and people's socioeconomic status in relation to their health statuses. <laughs> Is frankly more important than ever, and and it's all part of that film. So that's that's in the editing stage, which is really exciting, uh, and stuff like that. You know, people can view our trailer, or they can email us, and, and and say, hey, I'm really interested in that particular topic. How I get involved. Uh, and then 2022, we'll also see the social impact film festival, which is slotted for April 1st. Submissions will start that January 1st. And then the rare disease film festival, which will be in, in the fall of 2022, which will also be really exciting for us as we get to kind of branch out into more of the event production that has to do with the type of work we're already doing.
0: All great stuff, and um, we'll definitely stay in the loop with uh, what you guys have coming out into the world. Nick Hudson, Executive Director of Entertainment to Effect Change, E2AC. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us on Making Media Now.
1: Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here and keep up the great work that you're doing and your listeners are doing. Absolutely. I would boredom. be
0: Miss if I did not give a special shout out to Will Poli, a mutual friend of ours who connected us and helped make this uh, conversation and uh, burgeoning friendship possible. So, Nick, thanks. Uh, I mean, Will, rather, thanks very much for uh, connecting me with Nick
1: yeah thank you will. I know you're listening out there and uh, and thank you again Michael this is great and uh, and you do a great job so I really appreciate having me on. It's been a pleasure.